This is our last week looking at the sermon series called Thankful. Not thankful, but thankful. Having our lives exhibit this constant, constant place of being content with God. And we have seen so far through this series, although it's been very quick, that we can have this thankful type of life because we can have faith in God, because we can be heaven-focused, because we can be reasonable about the accomplishments in our lives. We don't have to be prideful in them. And then lastly, we can be realistic that all the things of this world, as pleasant as they may be, do not give us lasting joy. But we're left with that question, how do we, in this existence of ours, how do we really put this into practice? Because the world is full of worry and fear and anxiety. How can we really have confidence in God like this to where my life can be thankful up to 11 every single day? How do I accomplish that? And I'm going to start by telling you a story, and I know that it is tempting to think I'm talking about Sarah at this moment. I am not talking about Sarah at this moment. Sometimes preachers just have stories and it's not about their family. So, preacher gets up one Sunday morning and notices his wife in the back scribbling away at everything he's saying. He's making all these points in the sermon and he sees her just going crazy with taking notes from his perspective. Goes home next week, she does the same thing. And he's thinking to himself, I must be just amazing because she has never sat there and taken notes before. So I must really be on a roll with this sermon and these series. And so the third and fourth week roll around and she is just, as soon as he gets up start preach, her nose is in her notebook just taking notes. So finally, after four or five weeks, he goes up to her and says, hey honey, um, I'm doing pretty good at these sermons, aren't I? I mean, I'm seeing you take copious notes every single week. What's exciting about the sermon series? And she goes, I'm actually just making grocery lists and figured this was a very good time just to make my grocery list every week. Has our mind ever wandered during church? I mean, God says... Get together once a week. I don't care if it's for an hour, two hours, or 30 minutes, but we're designed to have fellowship with one another. Physically, we are the body of Christ. And even in that short amount of time, whether we're singing one song or the preacher gets up and doesn't grab our attention, our mind wanders. And this has a lot to do with confidence in God and contentment with God. Because if we were content and confident in what God was revealing about himself, Every single worship service, we would be laser-focused, knowing that our songs are being sung to the holy, holy, holy God Almighty, and that His Word is being delivered through His Spirit, not just into our minds to entertain us, but into our hearts to change us. We would be laser-focused. And I believe that if we approached a service like that every single day, or every single week, you would walk out with great confidence that our God is who He says He is, and you would have great contentment with what He's designed for your life. But we walk in this world that frustrates that ultimate plan. That's the ideal. And believe it or not, that's what heaven is going to be like. One amazing eternity 
where we are fascinated with God and we are joyful at our place with God. That will be ours one day. But in this world that frustrates us, sometimes our own heart and mind frustrates us with sin, we can get sidetracked and bored and focused on other stuff. So how do we stay focused on God even for an hour? Although our whole life is to be focused on God, how do we just start with something small? One hour. I have an enormous problem in life is I am either all in or out. And so I am either totally sold to an idea, a project, a hobby, or I dabble in it and then forget it. I'm never halfway. And this has um, the number of times I've started a diet and exercise plan on January 1st, probably 40 times. Because I am all in. It has to be everything or nothing. So how do we get to that place where our everything is just saturated with thankful hearts and lives? It starts with understanding our priorities and staying laser focused. And, and Jesus gives us two wonderful examples of that. One is in Matthew chapter 6. And if you remember anything about Matthew chapter 6, you're going, Tim, that's part of the Sermon on the Mount. The entire four chapters that are surrounding that are amazing. Actually, 5, 6, and 7. Amazing chapters. And I go to it often because these are kingdom principles for every believer at every time. These are things that are solidly applicable. They, they aren't theoretical. They aren't just mind-thinking. They're practical steps on how to live the Christian life that God has called us to. And in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19, Jesus gives us a wonderful example of focus, laser precision focus about contentment and confidence in God. And he starts by saying this in verse 19 of Matthew chapter 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Okay? Don't put all your effort and stock into getting stuff. Okay? The one who dies with the most toys at the end of their life doesn't win if their life was all about toys. God wants something more than just stuff in our lives. So he says, don't lay up treasures on earth those things that are just physical in nature. And he tells us why. Where moths and vermin, or rats, destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Has anyone ever had something stolen from them, or their house broken into, or car broken into? Our car's been broken into a few times, not here in Pueblo. Uh, there's no crime here in Pueblo. Never here. Uh, but, and, and you may know that I don't know, earlier this year, like January or something, the church was broken into. All, the, all he did was rifle through papers and steal uh, some computers. But that sense of feeling violated, right? That sense of, can it be safe again? Or what else can I do to protect? We, we get filled with anxiety, but that sense of being violated. Someone went through my personal stuff that's not me and took it? That's how we are to be attached to all the things of this life. It shouldn't have any bearing on us whether we have it or not. Because it doesn't, doesn't matter what you own, in time it will decay and turn to dust. It, it is... Um, 
It's one of those facts of life here on earth, in this whole universe. Things decay and fall apart. And we see that most notably in ourselves, right? Over time, wow, this is not the way it was when I was 10. Wasn't the way I was when I was 20. Wasn't the way I was when I was 30. And go all the way up, if you're 80, it wasn't like we were when you were 75. Our bodies change and all the stuff around us fall apart, decay, and change. And so God says, don't put stock in it. Don't put your faith, your trust, your confidence, your hope in stuff that can just disappear. Just be destroyed or be stolen. He says in verse 20, though, where we should put our interest, our laser focus. He says, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermins do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is will be also. Beautiful principle, God says. He says, you can have stuff, but that stuff, if your heart is so attached to it that you would rather die if you lost your stuff, your heart's in the wrong place. You are considering something that is decaying as your treasure. Instead, your treasure should be up in heaven. What are heavenly treasures? Because we're not somehow putting stuff in a bank account up in heaven. There's not a vault there with our name on it that when we do something here, something gets added to there, and one day it'll pay off and we'll see it. Those treasures in heaven, first and foremost, it is your relationship with Jesus Christ. That is a treasure beyond all treasures. That is a joy beyond all joys. That is contentment. That is confidence in a nutshell. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if He is your all in all and you are striving to walk in that and know it and live it, that right there is the greatest thing that you can ever possess is a family relationship with God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. There is not a greater treasure. There is not a greater thing that you can name that is better than that. That is ultimate. What else do you need if you have that? Uh, With a little bit of food, water, shelter, clothing, I'm satisfied. Paul was satisfied. Christ lived that way. Had no place to lay his head. Had no house to go back to. And yet his desire was to do the will of the Father day in and day out. That right there is a great treasure. Not everyone will experience that treasure. Some will go through this life and enter into death with no treasure whatsoever except what they got today in this life. And they don't take it with them. For where your treasure is, there is your heart. That's the spiritual side of these things, is that my heart is attached to something. God designed us to worship. He designed our whole self, our body, soul, spirit, mind. Everything that we are is designed to look outward and worship. We are designed to worship. And we will either worship the one true God as he's revealed himself in Scripture, or we will substitute that, which Scripture calls idolatry. We will all worship something, whether it's ourselves, whether it's fame, whether it's an ease of life or health or beauty or wealth, whatever it is, we will worship something Something will get our full attention, even 
When we're called to have our attention on God, we will put it somewhere else. Writing a grocery list, figuring out what we're going to have for lunch, figuring out what we're going to do for the rest of the week, going through our schedule, going through, oh, I need to do this and that, and our mind can just be saturated with stuff. But God says where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. So if your heart is attached to the stuff and events of this life, Jesus says very clearly, that stuff will one day be destroyed. Do you want to put your hope there? Your attention there? All of your energy there? Or do you also want to work on a relationship with me? Because that's what's going to last and take you through to eternity. He continues and says in verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Now he's talking about spiritually. He's not talking about physical eyesight, but he's talking about your thinking, your, your observation of things, your understanding of the world around you, that you gather that information, you take it in. And so he says, the eye is a lamp to your body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So he's, he's kind of connecting eyes and hearts in this, in this moment here by giving us a very <laughs> clear illustration. Um, I wear glasses. Uh, I've tried contacts, but there's way too much work involved for contacts. So I like just taking my glasses on and off in the morning and at night. It's super simple. But I remember the very first day I put on glasses for the very first time. I was sitting in uh, the doctor's office and um, I got my eyes tested. I knew I needed glasses. Uh, pretty much everyone in my family needed glasses when they were uh, going through adolescence. So he hands me the glasses and I put them on and it's kind of overlooking. There, there were some windows that looked outside to some trees. And I was absolutely fascinated that the trees had branches, and that at the end of the branches there were other branches, and, and they just kind of continued until it was sky. I, it had gone, I had gone years, well, probably just like a year, not being able to recognize and notice that the trees had all these intricate branches. And so if you wear glasses or contacts, you know what it's like when you take them off and put them on, everything becomes clear right away. Everything becomes better right away. And Jesus is saying, the way that you see life in that clarity is like having healthy eyes, a healthy understanding, a healthy heart. And when you see it with that perspective, you see all the details and God for all of his glory and for all of our um, relationship builders that we have with God and that he has with us, there's clarity in health. But if I was to take my glasses off and try to drive home, as well as I know that route, probably don't want to be in front of me. Probably don't want to be beside me or behind me either. You want to take a completely different route because it's unhealthy. And so the same is true when we have an attachment to the things of this world that draws our heart and draws our attention away from God. It's unhealthy. It's unwise. It's dangerous. Now he continues in here and says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Because he's talking about the things of this world and God and heaven itself. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he adds this kicker. You cannot serve both God and money. 
why would Jesus all of a sudden just add money to this? Because nowhere else in the Sermon on the Mount is he talking about money. But now he's talking about where your treasure is, where your attention is, where your heart is, where your effort is, and he adds money. 2,000 years ago he said that. The same is true of people today. Stuff and money is kind of just interchangeable language. Stuff and money. Do people put a lot of stock in how wealthy they are compared to someone else? Absolutely. What they can afford, what they can't afford, measures them in their mind and in other people's mind. Money and the level of money you have is either looked upon favorably with pity or with jealousy. Money is a very real thing. Paul later on in Timothy says, the love of money is the root of all evils. Not money, not stuff, but the love of it. Your eye attention to it. Your heart's dependence upon it. God says there's no value in that because in time, it's all destroyed and decayed. It all goes away. None of it can be taken with you. And so Jesus adds here, you can't both serve God and selfish pleasures rooted in the love of money. More importantly than that, in John chapter 12, Jesus adds to this, and this is, um, this is a wonderful passage towards the end of Jesus' life, and he's actually predicting his death in John chapter 12. And um, starting in verse 20 gives us the context here. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up worshiping at the festival. And they came to Philip, who was in Bethsaida and Galilee, with a request. They said, Sir, uh, we would like to see Jesus. So his disciples are surrounding him, and Jesus is, is worshiping. And people are coming up to his disciples saying, Hey, we, we want to have an audience with Jesus. We want to talk to him. And so Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip then told Jesus. Verse 23. Jesus replied. Now, even before the guy even said anything, Jesus just starts talking. They want to see him. He then responds with this in the next few verses. He says this. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. It's talking about planting something, and that seed, when it's planted, it, from our perspective, it just dies, but it germinates and then turns into a fruitful plant for people who have a green thumb. For me, I just buy it in a grocery store. It's not even worth trying to grow. But... For people who know how to do that, you plant the seed, water it, nutrients happen, sun heat happens, and it grows. But at first, from our perspective, is this little seed that you bury. You bury dead things. And so it's buried and forgotten until life takes hold of it and it grows. And so Jesus is saying, unless that happens, there's no life. And there's no fruit from that life. Now he's talking about his death here. Unless he dies and is buried... The resurrection won't take place, and the fruit won't be there. Now, this is not a trick question, but do you know what fruit Jesus is talking about? What flowering plant of life with multiple seeds is Jesus talking about? 
I'm talking about you. You are the fruit of his labor. You are the benefit of his death and resurrection. You are his inheritance. You are who God the Father gave to the Son as a reward for what he accomplished on the cross. You are the apple of his eye. You are so invested in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that he looks at you and says, you are my reward. If I don't do this, I don't get the reward. So I need to go to the cross. I need to die and be buried. Because in that burial, there's life and resurrection, and you are the fruit of that resurrection. I don't say that to make you prideful and boastful. I say that to encourage you and fill you with love. Because it was love that motivated Christ to do what he did. So he says, unless unless it dies, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Verse 25, anyone who loves their life will lose it. And anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He's not... I want to make sure that we fully understand this because I have heard people misuse that verse many, many times. Jesus is not at all talking about living in a way that destroys your life, that your life doesn't matter at all, that your physical breathing, your life doesn't matter. He's always said your life matters. In fact, he has a rule against murdering because your life is so valuable. But if my whole interest is making this life the most comfortable I can make it, then I'm missing it. I'm missing the entire point of Jesus coming and dying for me. Because I'm supposed to give myself away. Not protect myself, hide myself, and make myself rich. But I'm supposed to make my life a living sacrifice, Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I need to be a living sacrifice, which means I have to be willing to give of my life, my real life, to the cause and call of God. He then continues in verse 26, Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. That's what it looks like to put your treasure in heaven. I'm following Christ. Now, there's good news and bad news about following Christ. Well, it's both good news, but just for the sake of how I'm going to say this, there's good news and bad news. The bad news is Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you have to pick up your cross and bear it and walk the walk that I've walked. Well, if you know anything about the life of Christ, he lived a great 33 years on this earth, three of them in ministry, and that ministry had great success and sometimes great failures as far as numbers were concerned. But in the end, he died. He was murdered. He was executed, martyred. Of course, he was buried, rose again. That's the good news because Jesus has said, just as you follow me in my sufferings, you will follow me in my glory. So every suffering that you have endured, for the sake of Christ. Know that there is such a reward of happiness, blessing, and joy on the other side of that that it makes the suffering feel insignificant. I have never had a baby, uh, but I'm told that when a lady has a child, 
that it is excruciatingly painful. I've been told. I've seen it. <laughs> I have felt the hand grip of someone having a baby, and trust me, uh, I imagine it is very, very painful. The closest I've ever come was I've given birth to two kidney stones, which in and of itself is not very rewarding in the end. But as a family, as a mom has a child, there's excruciating pain, but then there's this moment of elation and joy as you hold your child. And that, that joy all of a sudden almost, in a sense, erases the pain, they say. We can look at the Christian life a lot like that. There is a call to self-sacrifice. There is a call for denying yourself. There is a call for putting others ahead of yourself. There is a call to forgive those who are really unforgivable. To love those that we really want to hate. To be merciful to those who have been mean to us. To be compassionate to those who are rude. To be giving to those who only want to take. And Jesus says, as you follow me, those things will be right in front of you. You're going to have to deal with them. You're going to have to deal with those painful moments of living your faith true to me. But in the end, it will all be worth it. Because the treasure in heaven is absolutely fascinating. It is so fascinating, so true, so real, so beautiful, so above our expectations that when you read the book of Revelation and John sees some glimpses into it, all he can say is heaven is amazingly refined, beautiful, and precious with lots of worship taking place everywhere where God is surrounded by all the saints and all the angels declaring, as he said in, in, in Isaiah 6, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And there will be this immense, overwhelming feeling of joy that we've only tasted here from time to time. But in order to get to that point, Jesus has said, there will be times where you have to follow me in my suffering. And that'll be hard. It'll be so tempting to be distracted and do your grocery list instead of focusing on what God has called you to do at that moment. It'll be so tempting to want to grab hold of the gold of this world and physically hold it. It won't bring us happiness. It won't bring us lasting joy. It can bring us luxuries of this life, yes. And there's nothing wrong with the luxuries of this life as long as we're not loving it more than we love God and others. And then he closes in verse 27 and 28. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Now, why would Jesus' soul be troubled? Because he knows what's going to be happening in the next few chapters. He's going to be put on the cross. He is going to suffer the pain of being whipped, the humiliation of being stripped and made fun of, and spit upon and slapped and ridiculed. 
And I think the painfulest, the most painfulest, the most painful moment in that entire trial and execution is when everyone turned their back on him. And Peter denied him. And he was alone. No one to rely on except the Father. Giving us an example of how to handle suffering. Yes, family and friends can help us through those moments, but ultimately our dependence, our hope needs to be on Christ and Him alone. And so Jesus says, I'm troubled. I know what's going to be happening to me. I'm going to have the weight of the sin of the world upon my shoulders, something you will never bear. And so he says, what shall I say? What should I do? And this is his answer. He's answering for our sake. He says, Father, save me from this hour. Take me away from this. Don't let me go through this. And he says, no. For it was for this very reason I came for this hour. Then he says, Father, glorify your name. Look at his attention. Look at his focus. He does acknowledge, I'm going to go through something really tough here. And if you want to take it away, God, please take it away. Don't let me go through it. But in the end, he says, but I was made for this. I was born for this very reason. I am your son for this reason, that I might endure the pain and suffering of the cross, the ridicule, the humiliation, that I might be the firstborn of many brethren, that I might be the King of kings and Lord of lords to my people, my inheritance, you. And his focus is not on his pain, his suffering, although he knows it's going to be real. His focus is on God, glorify your name. Not God, give me another plan. God, protect me. God, help me through this. It's God, glorify your name. Glorify your name. May my actions, my thoughts, and my life demonstrate to the world around me that you are my God and that I am yours. That you are my confidence. That you are my contentment. In the midst of everything else that goes around me, let the world know you are more important than the comforts of this life. You are more important than the politics of this life. You are more important than the sports of this life. You are more important than the beauty of this life, than the power of this life, than the education that this life brings, the homes that this life brings. You are more important. I think any time we look at the life of Christ and we then evaluate ourselves in light of that, I come up way short. Every single time. Every single time I look at his life, I look at his actions, I look at his devotion, and I am immediately surrounded by a conviction that I can glorify the Father so much better. I have so much more to give. I have so many more things to work on. And I don't think we need to be overwhelmed with that or depressed by that or feel defeated by that. That is normal. Not one of us has it all together. Not one of us has accomplished it. Not one of us has won that fight yet. 
Not one of us is conformed to the image of Christ in perfection yet. We are all works in progress. And that's why I love to describe the church, Christ's body, as a hospital for sinners. Not a palace for saints, but a hospital for sinners. Where we are all admitted, and we are all being treated, and we are all getting better. One day to be released from this world and to be with God. But right now, we're in the process of getting better. And we're all in that process. Some of us are, are advancing quicker than others, yes. But we are all being treated by the great physician to keep our focus on him. And as we focus on him, our life becomes more and more glorifying to the Father. So, to take home and to leave this question in our minds for the week, or at least today, that's, I guess that's where I'm hoping that we think about this at least today, who are we serving with our time, money, talents, and dreams? Father, glorify your name in us. Let's pray. Let's stand. Stand and pray. Father, we are thankful that you put in our hearts and our lives a desire to follow you. Lord, it is hard to follow you when we are pressured with the things of this world and all the attention grabbers. Help us to start each day focused on you, focused on glorifying you, focused on trusting you. Father, we do not trust in the riches of this world. We trust in you to bring us to glory. And so help us, Father, to live each day with real steps demonstrating your love in our lives. Help us, Father, to glorify your name. And in Jesus' name, all of, people, all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Make sure that as you leave today, you kind of go quickly outside. It's still beautiful out, beautiful sunshine, and will warm us up, uh, but we do need to be outside of uh, the sanctuary as soon as possible. God bless everyone, and see you next week. Hint, hint, the next sermon series is Christmas is not canceled. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>